Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Backbench Drivers. I'm your host, John Lawson, and with me as always is my co-host, Matthew. And joining us for the first time ever, we have a very special guest. He's a writer for the UK Mallard and generally just an all-around great guy, uh, Ilya Dokmanovic. And uh, he's here to discuss with us foreign policy. This is going to be an episode for all of the big foreign policy geopolitics fans. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So, um, I suppose without uh, wasting too much time, we'll jump right into it. Um, Ilya, would you like to tell us a bit about your background, how you got into writing, and um, how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, So... I basically um, grew up around the diplomatic community because uh, of my dad's job. And, um, you know, having grown up with that, having moved around the world and uh, sort of interacted with the diplomatic community at such a young age, I was privileged enough to see how, you know, the world sort of worked. And, um, you know, definitely politics and history were two very important subjects for me growing up and you know have always been a passion of mine um so i i've always always held a special interest and um you know my politics have changed over the years i went from being very uh liberal um sort of neoliberally minded to uh becoming you know very very conservative very nationalist um as i matured as i think most people do or at least most people with half a brain um and uh basically how i got started writing um for the mallard in particular was um it was at the tail end of my university uh degree um i was in the uk uh studying at royal holloway which is an excellent uh university uh had some really great people there great professors um and uh i heard about this uh it was an online publication at the time uh, called the Mallard, and they were looking for writers. And uh, I have a passion for writing, and uh, sent in a couple of pieces, and they published it on their website. Um, the Mallard has grown over the years. We had a published magazine for about oh, two and a half years, um, and you know, lots of readership. And uh, I've been able to talk about, you know, cultural issues, political issues, uh, history, um, and, you know, a lot of my passions and sort of lived experiences. And um, now I'm uh, primarily based in the U.S., um, just, you know, living and, uh, you know, loving life (laughs) as uh, one can, uh, you know, in these chaotic times, but uh, just seeing how uh, one of the most important countries in the world is uh, sort of changing, um, you know, firsthand. And with an election year uh, this year, it's certainly going to be exciting times and there'll be plenty to write about. Yeah, and as we were discussing just before the episode, you're really living in it. Um, You've been all around the world to the real hubs of where decision makers live. Um, And it gives you a really broad base of knowledge as well as that's reflected in your writing. I suppose we'll jump into this article that we're looking at from the Herald Sun. Uh, Matthew brought it to my attention, and it's uh, sort of an interesting article because it's written by Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister, and uh, he's been a big critic of Donald Trump for a long time, um, largely criticising his attitude towards China, I think, but also he's talked about the media bias, um, somehow believing that Fox News is uh, some massive advantage to Trump, which... I think to anyone that's paid attention to American politics in recent years, they can see right through this that it's really just about a profit for Fox News and for Murdoch. Um, but this is something that he's written a lot about. He's been very critical of Trump. Yet in this article, he sort of does a 180 and he's uh, endorsing some of Trump's foreign policy. Um, Ilya, you've taken a look at this. And uh, what did you want to tell us about it? What's happening here? Um. So... As I saw in the article, um, a lot of it has been about uh, Kevin Rudd's sort of changing stance on uh, Trump himself, um, you know, re- sort of reversing his stances of uh, calling Trump crazy and uh, this man's going to be the death of us and, you know, we can't, we can't let him have uh, access to the nuclear codes um, because I think Rudd realizes that 
um, a Trump presidency is you know more than likely uh, this year. And as Rudd is the ambassador uh, to the United States uh, for Australia, this is someone that he's going to have to work with. And he's going to have to work with the Trump administration and people like Robert Lighthizer, who uh, was the trade representative. Um, and you, you don't do well in politics and especially international diplomacy when you're shit-talking um, people that you're meant to be working with. So I think, I think it's a lot of backpedaling. Um, as for the, uh, sort of typical K-Rudd line of all oh, the Murdoch media, you know, running rampant, you know, giving Trump the edge, uh, this is, this is such a boomer talking point. Um, Trump's popularity doesn't come from Fox News. I mean, maybe traditionally it did, but nobody watches uh cable news anymore the ratings are terrible people get their news and their information from online sources mainly independent sources um and independent cr- groups and communities so kevin rudd can blame the murdoch media all he wants but it just goes to show how out of touch he is with the common man it really was unusual when I uh, I remember looking at some of his analysis and thinking the average conservative right winger who's you know pays any attention to Trump and what goes on around him has a better understanding of the media system and really right wing media than he does. It's uh, because I think a lot of us can remember how after um, Trump lost the election in 2020, whatever you think of it, um, whatever you think of that election and the outcome of it. Um, uh, Fox News, I think, began to blatantly just not show some of his speeches and really tried to cut him out of the conversation. Um, I don't think Murdoch's ever been a very big fan of Trump uh, at all. I think it was very cynical. And even uh, we can look at Tucker Carlson's history, uh, whatever, how good he may be today. Uh, before Trump, he really was not a populist or especially conservative and sort mm. of saw the writing on the wall and flipped when the Trump moment came about and became very much associated with Trump and his image, and he became a cheerleader for him. Um, but we won't focus too much on the media in this episode. I think we'll, we'll talk about this sort of realignment that's happening. Uh, you'd think that with liberal, with the Liberal Party's reputation of being no-nonsense, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll get the business side of things sorted, the economy uh, standing up on its two feet and balancing the budget and whatnot. Uh, instead, we're seeing that Labor is really demonstrating a, a sort of uh, far more impressive foreign policy, I believe, at the moment, especially with Israel-Palestine. Um, you can imagine that with uh, if we had Peter Dutton in at the moment, things would be very different, um, whereas within <laughs> Albanese's party, there are elements pulling him towards support for Palestine and those uh, probably much stronger forces pulling him towards support for Israel, which is why he has sent some aid packages, I'm sure, um, to Israel since the beginning of the war. And, um, and anyway, um, also in the case of China, as immediately after his election, Albanese went on uh, a sort of goodwill tour around the world and was really trying to restore Australia's uh, foreign relations after, I think, what a lot of people perceived as with Trump, uh, sorry, with, uh, with ScoMo being quite antagonistic towards China, especially in the lead-up to the election. Um, what do you have to say about all of this, Ilya? Is, uh, is, this a, is uh, Labor really demonstrating uh, that it is better on foreign policy or is something else afoot? Well, it's, it's sort of a loaded issue. So after coming from the ScoMo disaster, and his foreign policy was just terrible from the AUKUS debacle where he didn't tell the French what he was doing until basically the, the final hour before it was announced to, you know, constant saber-rattling with the Chinese with nothing to really back it up. Um, you know, I think I think even uh, a slight departure from that uh, by the Albanese government can be seen as, you know, a breath of fresh air and a step in the right direction, even if it isn't, um, you know, substantially any different. Um, I will say credit where credit is due to Albanese. Um, I think there is a level of uh, restraint, especially when it comes to, say, the Israel-Palestine debacle, um, where, you know, the, the, the Labour Party, 
being as sort of split as it is between sort of uh, more conservative labor and then the very, very left-wing labor um, party, you know, I think that the, the fact that they have that identity issue um, has led um, Albanese to sort of approach the issue with a bit more of a uh, fine-toothed comb and uh, yeah, exercise some restraint. But I really, when it comes to foreign policy, whether it's Albanese, whether it's uh, ScoMo, whether it's you know Liberal or Labour. Australia really doesn't have an effective foreign policy because our foreign policy is essentially what is the United States doing and how do we follow suit? Well, yeah, yeah I think it's worth saying. I'll, I'll let you go in a second, Matthew. But uh, Albanese's uh, at least seemingly pretty uh, decent foreign policy sort of stands in contrast with Joe Biden, who uh, is leading the US at the moment. And he's had a somewhat uh, rocky record especially, you know, under him, we've seen Israel-Palestine erupt, we saw Ukraine erupt, we saw the <laughs> Afghan pull, Afghanistan pull out, although um, I know many conservatives support that. You could argue that it could have been done uh, done better under Trump and managed better. Um, a lot of these conflicts, Trump himself has said that he would have deterred simply by being president. Um, and, and we're looking at Kevin Rudd here saying that, uh, actually, yes, Trump might have had a point. He might have been correct. Yeah, and just following up on Australian foreign policy, we've seen uh, the former Premier of New South Wales and Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bob Carr, talk about Australia repositioning ourselves as a regional power between China and the US in the Asia-Pacific. Do you see that as a viable future foreign policy for Australia, and what are the benefits and, and negatives towards that? Well, I absolutely see it as a viable uh, future. It's um, whether or not the politicians in Canberra um, have the capacity, the brain capacity to realize it. Australia, if it wasn't so intertwined with both the United States on sort of the diplomatic level and with China on the economic level, Australia could become a regional power in its own right we are largely we largely have the capacity to be self-sufficient in terms of feeding ourselves in terms of our access to water we are a natural uh, we have natural defenses for the fact that we're not surrounded by any other hostile powers um we have we have you know a tremendous uh military for our size where we lack in manpower i think we more than make up in the quality of the soldier and um i really think that if if australia is to become a regional power it needs to realize that we can't rely on the united states for everything and we really need to uh focus more on the independence of say like our military the independence of our own agricultural system where we're not just shipping out uh, the best products that we have to the rest of the world um, for, you know, really pennies on the dime and we're shipping, we're shipping in uh, agricultural products from the rest of the world and, you know, overcharging it for the Australian consumer. We have the capability, we have the technology uh, to do it. It's just, um, I think, the Australian uh, economy and the Australian government is so intertwined with wanting to work with the rest of the world um, and be the sort of fair dinkum, um, uh, fair play player on the world stage that we don't realise that we can do this on our own. We don't need the rest of the world for the most part. I mean, it would take a short-term hit. There would definitely be a short-term hit economically. Um, you know, the housing market would, you know, the bubble would definitely burst. There would be some hard times, but you have to think about the long-term strategy. And I don't think that Canberra um, or DFAT or anyone in Australian politics is thinking about the long-term strategy. Is that due to the nature of Australian politics with three-year terms at the federal level? Is that uh, being a, a, a blockage to any long-term thinking? Um, I, I definitely think that's a factor into it, but I, I just think it's the sort of more 
liberal nature of Australian political thought. I mean, we want to be part of the world system. We want to, you know, be the sort of model global society, or at least that's how a lot of politicians in Canberra think that's how a lot of uh, influential businesses in Australia are thinking of, you know, how can we make Australia the model global society? Hence why we're, you know, importing hundreds of thousands of people a year um, to our own uh, cultural and social detriment is we're, we're constantly seeking uh, to be the ideal multicultural uh, superpower but we're not going to become a superpower because of multiculturalism and because of uh, intertwining our economy with the rest of the world. We'll become a power by realizing our own internal potential. And, the, you know, when, when we challenge the Australian people um, and challenge them to rise to the occasion, I think the Australian people will more than, uh, more than willing be able to do that and would be more than happy to uh create a greater australia not a big australia's uh politicians say it but a greater australia i think this sort of subservient attitude is reflected in um the reaction of many people to especially people on the yes side of the of the voice campaign um their reaction when they lost was well this makes us look racist on the world stage what are other countries going to think of us um there really does seem to be uh, sort of self-flagellation in terms of Australia, cultural cringe, so to speak, um, mm. where people don't believe Australia can be uh, independent. And speaking of which, I'd like to ask you, what do you think that the primary uh, primary goal for a nationalist for- foreign policy for Australia would be? Would it be independence? Or what, what should be, we be aiming for here? What would be the most intelligent course to pursue? Well... I mean, again, it's it's definitely a loaded issue, but I'd say the the main priority would be to um, bring back manufacturing to Australia, and especially manufacturing of uh, weapons and uh, ships. The fact that we are outsourcing uh, the building of nuclear submarines to the United States for them to give to us, I think, is insane. Australia is more than capable of designing and building a nuclear submarine. We have nuclear scientists. We have incredible engineers that, and we could build the shipyards um, for these projects. But we don't want to. We we see it as much easier just to pay the United States to do it, which I think is ridiculous. We have the materials. We have the resources we can do it. Um, but I think, we're the again, the uh, Australian politician is limited in their thinking um, that they need this uh, exchange with the United States, um, that they need to you know constantly outsource this development when we're more than capable of doing it ourselves. So I'd say that's probably, you know, number one priority is uh, bring manufacturing of key... Uh, resources back to Australia. And then foreign policy-wide, I'd say we need to exercise more uh, control and influence over the sort of Asia-Pacific region. Will it bring us into potential conflict with China? That's a hypothesis. I think we'd become a competitor, but China is more uh, concerned about the uh, South China Sea and that part of the region. I don't really think they care or they don't really have the capability to maintain a presence over the greater Pacific region because they lack the Navy for it. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, what would be the process for us to get to this stage where we can you know, build our own ships and be self-reliant? Because I know one part of that submarine deal was that eventually they were going to be manufactured in Adelaide. I think they're also going to be um, after a period of time where it was going to be American staffed, it was going to switch over to Australian staffing and everything like that. I might be wrong on those details, um, but as I understand it, there was going to be some Australian involvement in that. Do you think this could be the start of an Australian industry where we revamp our manufacturing, especially in terms of armaments and ships and our defensive capability? 
I I definitely think it's a possibility, and I think if that is the case, if there is a transfer of the sort of uh, manufacturing after a time being to Australia, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, but at the same time, we're we're not expecting uh, these submarines to be finished until you know the twenty thirties, which I think is ridiculous. Um, we are <laughs> we're a first world nation where we have some of the greatest minds and some of the greatest workers in the world. We could easily build these things within a couple of years. We just don't, I just don't think we have the drive. Um, and you know, the, the world is definitely, you know, changing. There's a lot going on, which I think is distracting, um, the sort of, uh, internal ministries from realizing this. Um, but if, if it is the case of we are, you know, stepping in that direction, I think that's only a positive. Uh, but we need to fully realize it. We need to fully realize that we don't need to rely on uh, the United States or France or, you know, even the UK to do it, but we need to do it for ourselves. That doesn't mean I'm, a, you know, a Republican by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think that we thank do heavens. Need, thank heavens, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, we, we do need to really, uh, sort of kick, kick, uh, kick up the arse, um, to do it for ourselves. Yeah, it, it would have to come see... from internal, though. Yeah. It would have to grow out of our own attitude. It would have to come from an organic nationalism developing here, where we do have that desire, I believe. Um, exactly. Matthew, go ahead with your question. Do you see somewhere like Germany as kind of a model of protecting domestic industry to the benefit of the country? Oh, the German the German economy. Um, when I was uh, sort of growing up in the diplomatic world, I uh, went to school with a lot of German uh, kids, and um, you know, Germany has always been a country which has fascinated me, and even during sort of the credit crunch. Uh, the German economy fared okay, um, and I always, you know, asked the kids that I went to school, I was like, why, why is Germany like just, just so different from the rest of Europe and the rest of the world when it comes to this sort of thing? And they always said, "There's this mantra about, you know, you know, German-made, German-owned, um, you know, German-bought. They're really." emphasize their internal market and their internal economy which is why when you know tough times happen um they're able to stay afloat it's only when they again outsource key resources to other parts of europe like uh their energy sector or they you know shut down their nuclear power plants and rely on natural gas imported from russia that they face these troubles um so I think I think definitely the Germany of old absolutely um is a is an example to look at of you know we when we have the capabilities that are there to be self-sufficient why aren't we taking advantage of it you can't rely on the world to be you know consistently good and consistently trading and consistently uh stable there will be tough times um, and you need to have the internal strength and the internal resources to weather those storms. Australia has all that. We just, again, we just don't realize it. What might be the consequences of us refusing the US's uh, demands that we help in some conflict? For example, we see things perhaps reaching a boiling point in the Middle East. Um, I don't know that there will be ground troop, US ground troops, you know, going in. That seems a little bit unrealistic right now, but you can, you can imagine in a theoretical scenario, what would happen if Australia refused and we had to go our own way? Um, what would that look like for us? Well, it's, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, when it comes to US-Australia relations, whenever the United States gets into a war, well, we Australians, we love a good fight and we love to... Uh, love to run to the battlefield with uh, our american cousins um but if we were to refuse uh to say get involved in like maybe a ground war in say europe or the middle east with uh, i know tensions in iran are definitely getting hotter now 
But if Australia was to sit that one out, I think I think that it would be a similar response as to when the French refused to get into the Iraq war. There would be a lot of finger-wagging from uh, Washington, D.C. You know, there might be a strongly worded letter they might they might close Outback Steakhouse um, and rename it to Freedom Steakhouse. But these are I all very worrying consequences so far. Very worrying, very worrying <laughs> consequences. But I I don't think that they tr- the United States would try and escalate uh, where there need needn't be any escalation. The United States is more than capable of waging a ground war in Europe or in Iran or the Middle East without Australia's help. Um, so I, ju- I, th- I think it would be maybe a, a tough time in terms of relations, but I think the, the, the consequences would be rather menial in the grand scheme of things. Cause while it would, it would be a stain, we still have think places like Pine Gap, and we have U.S. bases in Australia that the United States relies on to have a uh, presence in the in you know the Asia Pacific region. And if they would escalate any further, well, that would mean that they lose access to those potentially lose access to those resources, which I don't think they'd be willing to risk. Fair enough. Matthew, did you have any questions that you want to ask? Yeah, on the question of American hegemony, do you think with the the rise of China economically and an emboldened Iran and Russia in particular, do you think American power is being challenged? And going into the 22nd century, will they remain the global dominant power? Well, I mean, we're we're still only barely into the 21st century. What the 22nd century holds, I, I think, is anyone's guess. But in terms of the, you know, say, the next uh, 10 to 20 to 30 years um, in U.S. Hege- hegemony on the global stage, um, I think we're more or less we're going to see the United States remain as the superpower that it is. That's not to say that there aren't many domestic issues with the United States which will potentially pull them back from you know having a more global presence i mean we're seeing all this debacle in texas and the issue of states controlling um their own sort of law and order while the federal government is trying to supersede that for pr victories i think that you know, there's there's definitely there's definitely domestic troubles in the United States, but there's domestic troubles in the UK. There's domestic troubles in Australia. We all face similar cultural and political issues. When it comes to competing with China, um, China and the United States, you know, although they you know talk big about oh you know we're competitors and you know there could be a war because Taiwan et cetera et cetera blah blah blah. The United States and China's economies are, are too intertwined for there to be a war which is beneficial for either side. And I don't think either side really wants a conflict with the other because it's a zero-sum game. They're both going to lose greatly, but China even more so. Um, so when it, when, it, when it comes to that, I don't see there being an issue with China necessarily. Uh, but when it comes to, say, Russia and Iran, where the United States economically isn't as tied up and doesn't have as much of, of a vested interest, I think that there's potential uh, for conflicts there. More so with Iran, um, just given the Middle East um, and the history of the United States and the Middle East, I think that uh, war with Iran um is i i don't want to say likely but i think that you know, there's there's always potential i don't i do, i really don't hope there is i hope that we're you know more or less able to continue with the you know business as usual iran hates the united states blah 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 but at the end of the day they're not going to do anything 
but with troubles in Israel and Palestine um, and all these militias and rebel groups in the Middle East, uh, you know, it's really anyone's game at this point. Um, And with the United States being so tied up with Israeli money and Israeli interests, if Israel is to, you know, be outward, outrightly attacked and suffer um, and then respond to Iran um, in any sort of capacity, I think the United States would get involved. Yeah, this uh, Israeli influence in a lot of Western countries is something that I think many people have started to take notice of, including in Australia, where there really is very little strategic interest for us in the Middle East and we're only ever over there at the behest of the US. So um, is this something that you're familiar with in terms of the Australian context? Um, and if if uh, we could also hear about it, it's not my area of knowledge, but in the UK, what, what does that Israeli influence look like? Because it really is in all Western nations. Well, I mean, it's it's very much in the similar vein of the United States um, as it is in the UK and Australia. We have um, Israeli and Jewish donor groups which donate heavily to all sides of the political aisle, um, funding campaigns, setting up uh, lobby groups and think tanks in order to sway policy. This isn't an you know anti-Semitic grand conspiracy. This is just facts you can see it you can see how these groups interact with each other um you know in the case of the republican party and the democrat party they're both donated heavily to by um the ai packs the american israeli pack um i know that in australia uh, the liberal party especially is donated to by I forget the names of the organizations off the top of my head, but the AIJAC I think is one big example of the biggest yeah. uh, Israeli lobbying group, according to journalist Michael West. Ex- yeah, and there's also individuals like uh, Dick Pratt and Mark Lieblo and whatnot. Exactly, exactly. So you know, you have you have people with a lot of money and a lot of resources that can influence the way politicians conduct policy. And, you know, you, we can see in Australia when it came to the recent passing of uh, the, the sort of hate crime legislations, um, who was primarily uh, funding and influencing how uh, these bills were written and who they specifically targeted. It doesn't matter for the fact that, you know, when the October 7th, uh, the October 7 attacks happened in Israel that the people chanting gas the Jews in Sydney weren't ardent white nationalists they were Palestinian sympathizers they were Arabs they were uh, Lebanese they were people who are you know stark opposites of Australian white nationalists but the legislation that was passed didn't target them it targeted people like uh, Tom Sowell and, um, you know, more white nationalist groups, which is, is frankly, it's uh, sort of ridiculous, um, I think. Um, but, you know, that's that's the nature of politics. It's uh, leveled with uh, ridiculousness and, um, you know, well, just, if you it, want it makes me roll my eyes. If you want ridiculous, have you heard of this recent thing with this group called the Shurion Collective? I have not. Please enlighten me. Oh, you're going to love this. So it's this group, and it uh, they've been operating as a surveillance organization, and presumably they have links, formal links to the state of Israel. But um, to my knowledge, they that's not stated within the recent Guardian article. So this group that uh, usually tries to attack the far right, they've recently been going after this Shurion Collective organization, because they uh, were opposing, uh, they were opposing Palestinian causes within Australia and, and in other countries as well. And so, one of the ways that this collective was uh, working is that they um, are data scraping and going into group chats and spreading information and all these things. Another one of the plans that they suggested, and this is just absolutely astounding, 
They were suggesting deep-faking AI videos of publicly <laughs> pro-Palestine people doing embarrassing things and then disseminating it and trying to scare them off of advocating for the Palestinian cause. It's just like we it's all, reaching like yeah. sci-fi, you know, I was joking, Mission Impossible levels of ridiculousness. And so um, actually I think this is a great counter-argument to something a guest that we had on a couple of weeks ago said we're talking with Jeremiah Ambrose. He's this influential young liberal in Tasmania. He runs this conference, Young Conservatives for Christ, and he's a really good guy. You know, he's very genuine. And he was talking a bit about how um, Jews and Christians can really unite on the issues that we agree on. And I think this uh, this case might sort of demonstrate why it's a very testy alliance. It will never be. Um, us to working on the same page because as soon as you go against the interests, these are the sort of levels that uh, pro-Israeli uh, organizations are willing to rise to and uh, just to uh, attack people. You know, it's not enough to deal with the facts. They will try and completely destroy your life. People who showed up at pro-Palestine protests. Uh, is that is this anything you've ever heard of, Ilya? I can't expect it is. Oh, I mean, I, I think I briefly saw that on Twitter. I skimmed by it and I just sort of rolled my eyes and thought, oh, yeah, of course. Typical. <laughs> um, but... You know, when it when it comes to this this whole uh, the the Judeo Christian um, alliance, um, it's completely manufactured and um, Jewish. Well, it's only the and... Christians really contributing, isn't it? It's the exactly. <laughs> you don't really see many Jewish groups coming out to support Christians. You know, from anti-Christian hate, it always seems to be Christians coming out against anti-Semitism, which is sort of curious yeah. how that works, isn't it? <laughs> It's it's pretty curious, but um, it's it's just one of the. I, I mean, I, I like to think back a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure if you saw it, but the uh, Gavin McGuinness, um, Nick Fuentes uh, debate about um, you know Israeli and Jewish influence in politics, and uh, Gavin's uh, sort of teammate in the debate was uh, I think his name was Andrew King. Oh, that was and, crazy. Uh, that was crazy. And, and when given when given the option of if he could, you know, like delete one religion from uh, the earth, whether it would be Islam or Catholicism, he chose Catholicism. Um, which is is ridiculous because yeah, I, crazy. I, don't, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find any uh, Catholic or any Christian for that matter which would say, oh yeah, I'd I'd much rather delete Judaism than um Islam, uh, for example. But you know, it's just it's it's this it's this ridiculous. Well a lot of Christians you know, are really misinformed on this issue and you know, they're not bad people. there's nothing against them. They're, a lot of them are great Christians, but they mm. just really don't know this history between our two religions. It's uh a lot of people just oblivious to it, clergy included, unfortunately. Oh, exactly, and I mean, not not to get in too much of a religious tangent, but on the you know political side of things, um, where we're constantly you know ha- have to be backed into the corner of oh you know you need to defend Israel and Israel's interests, otherwise you're anti-Semitic. From a purely political standpoint, Israel is no friend of the United States. Israel is no friend of Britain. Israel is no friend of Australia. This is a country which, when given intelligence or when given access to, uh, you know, you know, say uh, the F-35 program, for example, Israel was one of the first countries to get access to the F-35s. And what did they do with it? Well, they sold the information to the Chinese. <laughs> it's, it's just like... As you do, as you do. As you do. You play both <laughs> sides, so that way you always come out on top. <laughs> Geopolitically, it's a fantastic strategy, but it doesn't mean that you have to be subservient to them. Uh, similar example, the USS Liberty. Israel attacked an American ship, and the, the, the response by the US government was, oh, well, mistakes happen. Um, the bombing of the King David Hotel, another example. You know, the, the, this is this and to is bring it not... closer to home, the the Mossad uh, assassinations using Australian passports, and when a prime minister, uh, I think it was <laughs> Kevin Rudd, confronted them on it, the uh, AIJAC leader Mark Liebler threatened him with deposal as prime minister, <laughs> which is just crazy. 
Exactly. I mean, it's just this constant sort of pattern of bad. It's behavior, just such a which... strange pattern. It's just uh, it's just a very strange pattern. It really, <laughs> really activates the almonds. That's for sure. But um, I mean, like a similar case um in the UK. So Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, and he is very much a pro-Palestinian revolutionary, as all Marxists are. And uh, he was ousted because of uh, anti-Semitism, and they brought in Keir Starmer, who was very much pro-Israel and completely reformed the Labour Party to basically snuff out any potentially quote-unquote anti-Semitic culture. Um, And it's just, it's this constant thing of if you have any sort of criticism of the Israeli state and the Israeli influence on Western countries, you're, you're painted with this broad strokes brush, which is ridiculous. I mean, I bear no hatred for the Jewish people at all, but you, you, you really have to have some level of cognitive dissonance to say, well, there's nothing strange going on at all. Look the other way. <laughs> yeah. And speaking, Especially... of, um, speaking of tiny islands across the other side of the world, which are deposing prime ministers and exercising <laughs> inordinate power over our country, let's talk about the UK and, more specifically, the monarch that rules it all. Uh, what's Woo. your opinion on the Australian uh, monarchy and our relation to the UK? Oh, sorry, Matthew, I sort of interrupted you there, but I had to jump in there with that yeah. uh, little little comment. What did you want to say before Leo uh, goes on to the monarchy? Yeah, I just had a little comment. Is even if you know people at home are thinking, oh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn went against Israeli influences. You know, we must be pro-Israeli. Donald Trump, one of the most pro-Israel presidents <laughs> in recent history. Guess how he gets treated. Israel is accused of spying on the White House. And when Trump yep. is on election night, Netanyahu was one of the first foreign leaders, you know, buddies with Trump, to congratulate Joe Biden. So there's no reward in being pro-Israel or anti-Israel. They'll still treat you like shit if they want to. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's, no, loyal, there's no loyalty. There's no friendship. It's, it's purely a one-sided relationship and, you know, sort of slapping away the hand that uh, goes out to shake your hand. Um but you know that that is uh, typical, and I, I think I think we are seeing a changing in the conversation, which is very good. And I think the only reason why uh, Israel is you know exercising um, its military capabilities over Palestine now is I think that they realize eventually it's going to be too late, and they're not going to get the political support from the Western world because the younger generations are not pro-Israel, whether on the left or the right. So it's only a matter of time before your baby boomers and your Gen Xs uh, lose influence and you can't get the, uh, you know, aid that you need anymore to, um, you know, shoot children that are throwing rocks. Um, But, you know, back to the monarchy. (laughs) (laughs) On to more important issues. (laughs) On to more important issues. Um, Glorious King Charles III, rightful ruler of Australia. What are your thoughts, Ilya? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm I'm very much a, a pro uh, pro monarchist. I I always have been. Um, I think monarchy as an institution, whether it's constitutional, whether it's absolute, you know, the, the details don't matter. But I think the importance of monarchy um, is cultural above all else. It's the continuity of culture that we hold on to. The the problem with republicanism, um, and you know, the United States is a prime example of this. I've written about it before. You know, we have a president for four to eight years that you know set a certain standard, and then they either leave office or they're voted out, and then the script changes and the culture changes, and you know, everyone is sort of left to pick up the pieces, and you know, the the, the sway from left to right happens constantly where you know you can't hold on to anything that is sacred the united states of you know 1776 is very different to the united states of the 1800s of the united states to the early 1900s uh, to the united states of now and part of that is because they lack that continuity um the united kingdom um australia i mean you know Australia is still a young country, but, you know, culturally we are Anglo. And I think uh, one of the strengths of particularly British culture is, you know, we're able to trace back this grand story uh, through 
um, you know, the monarchy and the monarchy itself represents family. It represents, you know, the things that we ought to aspire to, you know, it doesn't mean that we always have good monarchs. We don't always have good monarchs, but the fact that we ought to uh, aspire to that higher level of uh, sort of grandeur and um, culture, uh, particularly centered around the family and religion, I think is a benefit to any nation. And I think it's it's one of uh, the Anglo world's uh, greatest strengths. And I think that by shedding it, we'd you know we'd be replacing something that we know that is consistent, that is you know something that we can all attach to um as a as a sort of identifier as a moniker of you know who we are as a people um and we'd be replacing it with just more of the same bland corporate uh suit and tie glass uh you know building metropolitanism which i think in the long term uh isn't sustainable um so yeah do you think Australia remaining a constitutional monarchy is t- sustainable with uh, with the way a future referendum might go? Do you think that it will be in favour of becoming a, a republic? Well, again, you know, I mean, we had the last uh, referendum on the monarchy in, was it 1999, if I remember I think correctly? that's correct. I'd have to check it though. Um, and uh, apart from, you know, like the eastern suburbs in Melbourne and, you know, a lot of the more built-up metropolitan, quote-unquote, multicultural areas of the major cities, the country overwhelmingly voted to uh, retain the monarchy. Um, same situation with uh, The Voice. The the multicultural cities, which are, you know, demographically, you know, not what they used to be, um, voted one way, whereas the rest of the country voted to remain, you know, the same, remain consistent with the Australia that they know, with the Australia that was given to them by their parents and their grandparents and great grandparents and so on and so forth. Um, I think if another referendum on monarchy was to be held, I don't think it's likely. I think it's still, you know, pretty pretty fresh um, in everyone's Especially mind. Especially with the recent referendum failure as well. I, I don't <laughs> exactly. think that's going to be attempted. I, 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 don't think, I don't think the government is willing to waste uh, more of the taxpayers' money for... Uh, oh, you they're know, willing to, but they just don't think that they'll get the result they want. They won't win the next election. <laughs> exactly, just exactly. They're waiting until something passes away. Then they can actually win a <laughs> referendum. Exactly. So, I mean, they're they're waiting for the demographics to change enough where the Australians of the future, the sort of new Australians, quote-unquote, have no cultural, ethnic, uh, racial, spiritual ties to uh, the United Kingdom and to the monarchy and to, you know, the Australia that existed before. and that I think is I, I don't think that's just a travesty. I think it's outright evil to uh be wanting to replace the old stock um in favor of the sort of new globalist vision of Australia. Um potentially could happen down the road, but I think if, you know, Australian nationalists really get their act together and start becoming more politically active and more politically aware. And, you know, I, I see a lot in the youth, um, you know, between, you know, the, you know, late teen, you know, 20 year old demographic, while there is a major split and while there is, uh, you know, a large group of people that are very much, you know, pushing for the new Australian identity, I see just as equally there's the there's a significant number of mainly uh young men who are wanting to retain the old Australian identity. And I think that's only gonna serve uh to you know, the greater good um in the future, because you know, at the end of the day, men lead the way. Well, even as far as uh as King Charles the third isn't really going to side with us, I don't think, on many issues. He's not going to restore Australia you know, come marching in on a horse and sword in hand, you know, and uh, get rid of our ruinous 
political class. Um, <laughs> but I think he will serve as a, he sort of, well, his, the position he occupies serves as a symbol. Um, we remember exactly. with when the Queen passed away um, that the people that showed up to her funeral and the all the remembrance celebrations, not celebrations, but all the remembrance uh, gatherings were, people were taking videos of the crowd and they're almost all native Britons in England, and um, which exactly. was even in parts of England that had gone um, a majority non-white a long time ago, um, the crowd demographics were still turning out in this way. Um, and I think maybe less so in Australia, but uh, the monarchy can serve as a sort of uh, rallying point for people who are more conservative. Even if they don't fully align with us, we can, um, we can sort of... Um, try to raise people up to this higher culture that Australia proceeded from, and um, and by this means we can uh, you know return get get the youth back to uh, I say the youth like I'm an old man get our our <laughs> generation back to a point where uh, they would even be interested in working their uh, their whole lives to restore our country and um, you know advance Australia. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, at, the, at you know at the end of the day. The political battlefield is all about, uh, you know, the symbols that we attach ourselves to, the movements that we attach ourselves to. Monarchy, I think, is the penultimate symbol, and it's a system which has existed basically since the dawn of civilization, and there's a reason for that. People like... um, a leader that they can see, a leader that they can relate to, a leader that looks like them and inspires. Well, even them. I think um, with I think Trump and also King Charles are uh, indicators of this that they they're not like the usual scrum either. And you exactly. sort of uh, they they are sort of they're, they're uh, images of a higher culture, and uh, you can see sort of how posh King Charles is, and um, and he he's sort of he's you know well mannered, and, and it really calls us back to a better time. And how things can be again, you know, if we are uh, if we are to be successful as nationalists in Australia and the mm. rest of the Anglosphere. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's it's a sort of a, a choice. Um, do people want to be ruled over? Because either way, you're going to be ruled over by someone. Do you want to be ruled over by middle managers, HR representatives, and theatre kids, or do you want to be <laughs> hey, I don't mind a female monarch. Um, <laughs> or do you want to be ruled over by someone? Wait, with wait, wait! Is there a way that we can only have male monarchs? I feel like that. that yeah, we yeah. should look into that. But, yeah, it used to be. It used to be that way. Really? Um, oh, more of a more of a continental thing than a British thing. <laughs> but um you know would you rather be ruled by you know the sort of middle managers and theater kids of the world or would you rather be ruled over by someone with class with dignity with grace um and, and with the remembrance someone... of their own history and they've been trained their exactly. whole lives as a leader they've been raised up for that purpose by the exactly. by a previous generation of monarchs passed down for eons for generations exactly being a monarch isn't a job i mean isn't like a great you know thing to be born into you're born with into something with massive amounts of responsibility and weight it's not a job that i'd want or i don't think any sane person would want you can give yeah, it to me sure. if it ever gets passed <laughs> on to you i'll, I'll take it <laughs> absolutely but um you know it's 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 tough work and it's a tough lifestyle and there's a reason why we have you know this generational passing on um, of it is I think only a monarch can understand and pass on the knowledge to the future monarch. Um, but yeah, you know, again, it's it's a loaded issue when it comes to Australia's place in, you know, retaining the monarchy. I sincerely hope that, you know, we understand the uh, cultural significance of the monarchy in Australia and um, our place in the greater Anglosphere um, because of it. Hopefully, um, his visit, Charles's visit, uh, I think it's next year, will yeah, help to no, reignite absolutely. a little bit of that and a bit of uh, British well, identity or you know, white issues. Australian identity when he comes over. And John, we've got to do an IRL podcast with King Charles when he comes over. Yeah, I'll invite him on. I'll, I'll get, I'll get right, in touch. Yeah, pin it down on the calendar. <laughs> it's already, I, I, it's bold of you to assume I haven't already got it booked in. Oh, 
of course, of course, always. We on had the Graham top Campbell of last week. Next, uh, next week we got uh, King Charles the Third, Emperor of Australia, on. Oh, how can we forget Ilya? Oh no, he's hmm? dropped out. Whoops, he didn't like that. You said that. <laughs> <laughs> we wait for it's him to right. come back. Sorry, boys. All good. All good. good. Yeah, internet can be a bit spotty at this time of night, unfortunately. No stress. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you living in Brazil at the moment? <laughs> That's it all feels like that sometimes. <laughs> They're trying to... You know what? I think uh, the uh, JIDF heard about our uh, talk about the Israelis and are trying to <laughs> no, shut us down. No, they heard about our talk about the British uh, <laughs> worshipping <laughs> King Charles too much. <laughs> Love it. He's secretly, he's secretly based. based. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, can you imagine, can you imagine if his son, imagine his son is like a broiler like or something? That'd be sick. No, hundred percent George. It's like Baron Trump. Baron. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. Oh, he's gone. No, you're back. You're back. I'm back. Sorry. Yeah. No. Again, spotty. But um, yeah, Baron Trump and uh, the uh, littler. Uh, monarchs, I see great hope for them. You know, anyone who's growing up with uh, Twitter and Fortnite is eventually going to become right wing. Oh, well, surely, like watching their parents <laughs> get defamed so much would uh, have that impact on them, right? Ah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think. Anyway, um, and there's and there's groupers in, in Eton College waiting to red pill Prince George. <laughs> <laughs> we control the, the halls of power. <laughs> Well, it's the new it's the new punk culture, and that's what attracts the youth. I think the youth. How old are you, Ilya? I'm twenty five. <laughs> twenty five. Are you Zuma? I technically I, I'm I'm on the cusp. I, I think. Oh, I'll uh, just claim it. Just say you're a Zuma. I'm yeah. a go on. I'm a Zuma. <laughs> we can give you honorary status. You know, leader of Zoomers <laughs> we are. There we go. Beautiful. <laughs> anyway. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> oh, just the monarchy. Did we want to bring it in for a landing and then maybe we'll wrap it up? We've been going for an hour now. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Is there anything? I gotta, to I gotta head to bed. It's almost five a.m. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> Sorry. Nah, you're good, man. I've enjoyed it. Okay, I'm glad. All right, quickly, we'll wrap it up and we'll let you get your sleep. And uh, that's it. It'll be beautiful. All right. Um, do you want to just finish up on what you were saying on the? If you remember. On the previous topic. Also, there's a bit of an echo. Is that you, Matt? No. Uh, I can hear you echoing as well. I can hear everyone echoing. I'm, I'm trying to fix it, but uh, oh, okay. it's not really okay. letting me. Uh, it should um, be edited out. It should be fine. Okay, no worries. But um, I think from what I remember talking about, uh, the monarchy is just, um, you know, I, I think that, Australia's place in having the monarchy um, is is important, and you know we need to remember that it's not just about uh, you know self government, which is what the Republicans like to claim. Um, it's it's more of a cultural and an identity issue. Same same issue as uh, the voice. You know this is this is not something about uh, you know political uh, opportunity. It's something which is diminishing the identity of Australians if we take it away. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely retaining retaining as a, as a monarchist. Yep, as yep, are we all, all, I think. Anyway, anyway uh, we've uh, approached we've the approached end of our time. Thank you for joining us, Ilya. It was uh, great to have you on and uh, to hear your knowledge and uh, for the audience to learn from you as well. Where can we find all of your uh, links and social media? Um, so you can follow me on, uh, oh, I, I hate calling it X, but, uh, you know, find me on X. I'm at punished gum. Um, I have, uh, lots of published articles on the mallard. I also have a website, uh, identityrebuilt.com, although I haven't updated it in a while. So it's quite a lot of older stuff. Um, and yeah, just, uh, feel free to follow me and, uh, you know, give me a shout. We can have a chat or, uh, yeah, let's see all good things happen in the future. Well, thanks for coming on. We'll have to have you back on another time. It appears that Matt has departed already, got sick of us, but, um, I'll say basically goodbye. Well, yeah, no, thank you very much for uh, having me on. I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, you're also gone. Has shit the bed again on my side. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening, guys. Make sure you head to <laughs> national, thenationalobserver.co. That's where you can find all of our uh, older podcasts, articles. There will be one releasing. Uh, there's one releasing each week. So you want to subscribe so that you don't miss it. You can also find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify at the moment for uh, Backbench Driver Podcast. And uh, I wish everyone a very good week. Thank you. Thank you.